Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in History. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. With me today is Professor Tim Lockley. Dr. Lockley is a professor at the University of Warwick, where he teaches mainly American history. He has published multiple books, articles, and book chapters on the colonial and antebellum South, maroon and slave communities, the social and racial history of Savannah, Georgia, and other related topics. His new book, Military Medicine and the Making of Race, Life and Death in the West India Regiments, 1795 to 1874, charts the origins and evolution of the British Army's so-called West India Regiments. These were soldiers of African descent who fought in the British military in the Caribbean and West Africa. Dr. Lockley discusses how white medical and statistical observations of these regiments changed over time, which helped develop perceptions of race and racism in the 19th century Anglo-American world. Dr. Lockley, many thanks for being with us today, and congratulations on this new publication. Thank you. All right. So first off, since many of our listeners might not be familiar with this topic, uh, can you just describe what the West India Regiments were and how they came about? Sure. So the West India Regiments were regular units of the British Army that were created in 1795 through 1798. Uh, there ends up being about 12 of these regiments and they're created uh, in the West India Islands. And they are created mainly, as I argue in this book, in response to the inability of European soldiers to live long enough to be useful. Now, the Caribbean has always been a dangerous place for European soldiers to be stationed. Uh, there's always been a relatively high mortality rate, but it's been sort of been manageable for quite a long period of time. And then in the 1790s, there's a new strain of yellow fever that comes. It's brought in from Africa and it absolutely devastates European regiments. I mean, regiments are losing 20, 30 percent of their of their men. And the British uh, military operation in the Caribbean, uh, they're engaged at the time in a war with France just becomes unviable. They can't staff their regiments um, substantially. Uh, And so they they start to think seriously about recruiting uh, black soldiers, soldiers of African descent. And uh, they've done this before. They've been African soldiers working uh, in the British Army uh, throughout the 18th century in the Caribbean. Um, But they've always been fairly short term. They've been recruited for a campaign and then they've been disbanded. But this is the first attempt to do it seriously. We're going to have a, a a bunch of uh, men who were going to be permanently on the army uh, regiment roll. And they they start in 1795. They tried to recruit uh, among the islands. They tried to recruit local people. Uh, they, they recruit some men uh, in captured French islands to serve in the British army. Um, but very quickly, they realized they can't recruit enough men. And so about 1797, 1798, they start to buy men from slave ships coming directly from Africa. And so people would come off uh, slave ships from Africa. 
they would be assessed as to their um, age, health, etc. And they're obviously all men. And then they would be given a uniform and they would be, you know, in, instructed in the arts of being a regimental soldier. Um, and over the course of the next five years or so, so by about sort of 1801, 1802, there are around 6,000 men under arms in the West India regiments. That's yeah, it's, it's just a, it's such a fascinating history, especially, you know, thinking of the West Indies as this place of disease. And, you know, I'm thinking of J.R. McNeil's book, Mosquito Empires, and, you know, his emphasis on how, in, you know, it's a, such a death trap in the West Indies, um, especially with, with yellow fever, as you, as you said, and, you know, his anecdotes of, of, you know, British, especially British regiments being sent there for punishment, right? Because it's such a death trap and, and, um, you know, or perhaps Irish soldiers who are more dispensable perhaps in the, in the London mentality sent there. And it's just interesting too, to think that, you know, the situation must've gotten so desperate in the 1790s that perhaps any, you know, qualms, of arming um, people of African descent, some people who you know said who were directly bought off of slave ships, um, in part to help quell any potential slave revolts. That that consideration mm, perhaps is over uh, is not as uh, important as the very fact of of being able to have enough troops to be useful there. So you know, is 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 that kind of an accurate description of, of the situation in the 1790s? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there'd always been a wastage of European regiments, um, and it perhaps averaged between five and ten percent a year. But the army seems to have thought that was acceptable. I mean, it's a pretty high mortality rate, to be honest. But it seems to have thought, you know, we can live with that. But it's when it gets to, you know, thirty percent, and uh, and not only that, you know, of the remaining seventy percent, maybe half are sick, and so your actual fighting strength is down to you know, 30, 40% of the men meant to be, you know, in the regiment, you've only got 30% left who could actually, you know, hold a weapon if they had to. Um, that's when they start to realise that actually they can't do anything. They can't mount any campaigns. They can't even hold on to what they've got. Uh, and they're facing, you know, a renewed and reinvigorated France in in the mid-1790s because the French by then have um, ended slavery in their colonies, the French, uh, the new French Republic has ended slavery in Saint-Domingue and in Guadeloupe and Martinique. And they are recruiting these formerly enslaved people into the French army to fight the British. Uh, and so definitely the idea becomes, uh, is, is one that the British borrow from the French and the, the French show them, you know, how to do it effectively. And they realise they haven't got a hope of competing in France, uh, with France uh, in the Caribbean without doing this. The, the classic history of, of emulating empires and in this time of international competition. That's really, really, really interesting. Um, so, you know, your, your previous work, it seems, is mostly focused on the antebellum South, particularly South Carolina and Georgia. Um, so I just was wondering what prompted you to conduct research on this topic that seems a little bit uh, farther afield from your other publications. Yeah, well, I think it was a it was a progression from in, being interested in slavery in the US, uh, mm-hmm. and I'd written a, an article and done some research on uh, black mortality, and the factors that influence uh, uh, mortality, especially in coastal Georgia, and uh, and these kind of factors. And I mean, I was interested in things like the impact of disease, uh, especially epidemics, um, on the enslaved population, and so that was sort of my in. 
to the topic, uh, the idea of racialized medicine, I guess. Uh, and then a colleague of mine at Warwick, uh, David Lambert, he and I uh, were chatting and he was telling me about the West India Regiments. Now, he's a Caribbean historian, much more so than I am um, in, in training. And he was telling me about the West India Regiments. And we got chatting as to how we could you know, work on these um, the regiments together, but you know, doing different you know, aspects of, of their lives. And uh, he's interested, very much interested in their uh, membership and their, being part of the British Empire um, and and how they're perceived and uh, people react to them in, in Britain. Uh, and I was interested in the, in the medical angle, so we thought together we could um, actually run a project, very, a very nice project, uh, working on them, sort of uh, approaching them from different aspects. And so we applied for a, a research grant, which we got, uh, and we had a like a four-year project uh, working on these uh, these soldiers uh, from different angles um, and it's great to work on a project with uh, other people so you can you know bounce ideas off people you've got a set of people who know what you're talking about uh, and that's always great um, and we worked with the British Library um, in London so we've created a, a website an educational website which is designed for school children and it has lesson plans, etc. Uh, and it's designed to tell a story of uh, the Atlantic world, the Black Atlantic world, uh, that doesn't necessarily revolve around slavery. Um, so, certainly in the British context, the curriculum about Black life in the 18th century is all about slavery or anti-slavery. Well, here was a story about you know Black men. Uh, in the Atlantic world doing something quite different, fighting for empire, fighting as agents of the British crown. Uh, and we thought that would be a different type of story to tell. And so we've created these lessons for school children, which are all on the on the uh, British Library website. And anyone out there who is listening um, and who is interested in um, offering an educational experience to school children, um, they can use this resource completely free of charge. It's got all the resources, got the got the got the lesson plans, all down there on the British Library's website. That's really great. I, I, you know, a couple points there. You know, so great to see a success story for collaboration, especially in a discipline I think of history that sometimes eschews collaboration. So, so that's really nice to hear, and um, and especially to those resources, especially for pedagogy. That's really fantastic. Um, so kind of, you know, jumping off a couple points you made there, um, especially this idea of racialized medicine. Um, and, you know, this book is, is primarily, I think, about race. And, and first, you know, I have a couple follow-up questions here, but, but if you could kind of just enumerate what you mean when you say race, how do you define race in this book? <laughs> well, I think as I start out by saying, like on page one, um, you know, race is a really slippery concept. It's a tricky concept to work with. Um, and uh, I, th I think what I'm aiming for is how people understood race and how people uh, attributed things uh, to black soldiers, um, which only applied to them because they were um, either black skinned or from Africa. And so the very creation of the regiment is, is all about the special, supposedly special properties that Africans have uh, in combating tropical diseases, that they have special abilities that Europeans don't have. Uh, and so a lot of the book is about how Europeans, um, especially English people, but, but not just English people, um, 
define race uh, in a sort of medicalized way, an increasingly medicalized way. And they decide that those of African descent have special you know, medical properties. And that's not just the fact that they are resistant to tropical diseases. It's the fact that they think they can uh, work harder and longer in tropical conditions. They've got better stamina than Europeans. Now, of course, that's been the justification for slavery for the previous 150 years. Uh, but they particularly note it with regard to these uh, West India Regiment soldiers as well. Um, but they also believe that they are um, better at certain aspects of soldiering, uh, naturally better, uh, innately better. Um, and that includes things like uh, they have better eyesight, so they're better marksmen, that they have better hearing, they're better, they're better at bushcraft, at tracking, uh, those kinds of things that um, are all sort of embodied in the black soldier that make them this ideal uh, black soldier for serving in tropical environments. Um, but they're also very conscious of the fact that uh, this tropical body is not suited to, for service outside of the tropics. So attempts to use them in other regions for example, in um, uh, Gibraltar or in uh, North America, don't come off very well. And they attribute that not to um, bad planning or lack of resources, uh, those kind of things. They attribute it to a racialized weakness, that these men don't survive uh, and thrive in colder conditions because that's not where they're suited to be. They're suited to be in the tropics. Um, so yeah, it's it's all about how um, you know race and medicine intertwine here um, in in really sort of interesting ways, and the West Indian regiments end up being sort of at the heart of that story, and that's sort of why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And you know, going back to another kind of follow up here, in your last comment you said talking about how the narrative in Caribbean studies, in particular, is all about about slavery, and and certainly in most discussions, I would say. And obviously, I'm an early modernist, so perhaps not as much in the 19th century, but most discussions about racism it comes back to this sort of origins debate or this chicken and egg debate, you know, which came first, slavery or racism. Um, but but obviously, as you just kind of mentioned, your, mono, your monograph talks very little about slavery. Um, so so why then, in your mind, is, is slavery not sufficient to study race and racism here? Um, I think because... Uh, the status of these men is interesting. They start out being bought from slave ships. Uh, but in 1807, Britain bans the Atlantic slave trade. So that, that ends up the, the source for, for slaves, uh, for, for recruits into the regiments. And so they turn to people captured off uh, other people's slave ships, the so-called liberated Africans. Uh, and they get recruited in Sierra Leone. Uh, so that's the alternative source of uh, recruits. And only by sort of the middle of the 19th century, the 1840s, 1850s, do people locally born in the West Indies start to become the main source of uh, recruits into the West India Regiment. So for the first 50 or years or so, they're mainly African-born people. Um, and they're not treated like slaves. And by that, I mean... Um, and even when they officially are slaves, like that first 10 years or so, they, you know, legally you might say they were slaves, uh, they're not treated as slaves because the army never sells them. So it never tries to trade in men who are no longer useful as soldiers. It never, it never tries to sort of sell them on 
um, after they've done 10 years of soldiering. In fact, what they do is they treat them exactly like any other soldier of the British Army. Now, they don't treat anyone in the British Army particularly well, it has to be said. Um, So working in the British Army uh, as a rank-and-file soldier is quite a hard job. Uh, the the discipline levels are brutal. Uh, there's lots of you know harsh punishments for for minor crimes. Um, and but but they, these apply to to white European soldiers as well as as African soldiers. Um, but when these men are injured, uh, they they don't get rid of them. They treat them in in the regimental hospitals. Um, when those men um, are uh, injured and not Um, able to return to active service, they are given things like guard duty. Uh, And when they become old and no longer useful as uh, regimental soldiers, they are retired. And they're not retired as in sold off. They are retired to places like Trinidad and um, Belize, uh, Britain's um, colony in the, uh, in in Honduras, um, and they are given little bits of land, and they are allowed to, you know, become you know subsistence farmers. Some even end up in Sierra Leone. Uh, so the army never treats them like slaves, and they are treated as free black men, I guess, uh, despite what their legal status might be. And I think that's the interesting thing about the West Indian regiments, in that they they are easily the largest body of free black men in the Atlantic world that we can study as a group. Because the one thing the army does really well is gather records. And so they are the most heavily documented body of men over the course of you know, you know, more than a century uh, that we can study to understand how these people you know, lived and died. And that's, what, you know, that's why I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, that's um, I think just a great intervention. Um, and so, so just moving back to the the content of the book and, and the comments you made uh, earlier, you know, talking about the West India regiments and how, um, especially surgeons, uh, were examining these black soldiers and established that these people were, you know, inherently different. You use the word superhuman. They had special medical properties, more resistant to diseases, but as you said. To, could take on harder physical challenges, had increased hearing, better eyesight. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, how, how and, and why did these surgeons come to that conclusion? Was this purely based on just empirical, you know, as you said, the British Army is really good at collecting data and they just kind of observed this trend or, or was there something else going on there? There's a, there's a combination of things going on. They, beca- they come uh, primed to think they are superhuman because there have been plenty of medical... Um, treatises written before the West Indian regiments were even founded, which say that black people have special resistive properties to disease, uh, tropical diseases. So those things are not new, and those would have been read by army surgeons. But every regiment has a surgeon attached to it. Uh, And sometimes they have a surgeon and an assistant surgeon, so there might be two uh, medical officers. And um, every garrison place has a hospital uh, room or, or wing where the men who are sick are treated. And we know from the records that do survive, they're not by no means comprehensive in terms of detailing every single case, but those sort of snapshots of records that survive, we know that um, most regiments uh, had men visiting the hospital on average twice a year. And that tells us that 
the surgeons probably knew these men better than any other white officer. Because the, the, the white officer class, the, uh, the lieutenants, the, the, the captains, the majors, they would have a certain number of men to look after. Maybe, you know, 100, whatever. Um, but they wouldn't see the entire regiment. They wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be involved with the entire regiment on a regular basis. The surgeons, by contrast, probably would see the entire regiment over a period of time. And, and then a lot of it is empirical. A lot of it is is their their observations into what people's uh, behaviour was like. So these surgeons they uh, see all the men regularly, and they write down the uh, details of each case that they deal with, and they report these cases on a uh, annual basis back to the War Office in London. And some of these records survive. So we've got lists of cases treated. Sometimes we have quite detailed notes as to how the men were treated. Uh, sometimes they uh, list uh, treatment regimens and outcomes, which is you know really useful for the medical historian. We know exactly what medicines these people were given uh, and how long they were in hospital and how, and how long before they got better. Those kind of things, the mortality rates from certain diseases, that's all documented. Um, so they're not comprehensive for every regiment over a you know, the whole period, they are, you know, snapshots we get. Uh, but overall, they're really useful. Um, so what we have is uh, increasingly these surgeons start to try to treat these black soldiers slightly differently to how they treat white soldiers. So sometimes they write that they, they need uh, different medicines to white people. Uh, and they base that on on the fact that you know, treatments for white people might involve um, bloodletting, for instance. That's a very common treatment for pretty much any illness in the 19th century. Um, but they quickly decide that bloodletting isn't a good uh, treatment for black people. Um, and, the, you know, other treatment regimens are required. So they start to make these sort of medicalized uh, generalities of you know, differences between white people uh, and their black soldiers, and and sometimes they're doing this because they're treating white and black soldiers in uh, the same hospitals. You know, when they've got garrison hospitals in Barbados and places like that, where both white and black soldiers are, the same surgeons are treating both white soldiers and black soldiers, and they're commenting the fact that, you know, for instance, the, the black soldiers recover from wounds faster than the the the, uh, the white soldiers, and they and they wonder why that is, uh, and this. Uh, sort of strengthens this sort of superhuman argument, which is the dominant narrative in the medical literature for the first sort of 40 years or so of the West Indian regiments, right up until the mid-1830s. This dominant narrative of you've got these you know, super strong um, men who have this special skin, and they attribute black skin to having very special qualities in that it's, you know, it heals faster, it's harder to, it's tougher, it's harder to damage. Uh, and sometimes they write about that, um, that if they try to take blood from uh, a, a black soldier, uh, they, they find it really difficult to, to penetrate the skin with the needle. That then, uh, sometimes they say it blunts the needle. Um, and that's a really interesting idea. But it's something that you then see repeated again and again and again in other literature. Um, so uh, it's something that emerges out of the treatment of black soldiers in these military hospitals. And and just um, just interesting to to note too, you know, that how dominant that is for as you said 
30 or 40 years in the first part of the 19th century. And just because there's a moment, too, that I wanted to bring up that, and this is somewhat selfish because I study the island of Dominica in the 19th century, but, but you, you talk about how the West India Richmond has, has a mutiny in 1802. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, you know, it seems like this, this medical literature is so dominant in their perceptions, but are events on the ground, on performances uh, on the ground, uh, causing any doubts at all in, in this uh, perception of these troops as, as superhuman? Um, I think I think generally I would say no, um, because anyone who comments on their military prowess, for instance, um, in that first thirty years, is full of praise, saying they're brave and you know great great soldiers. They venture into places where white troops don't want to go. Uh, they're um, quite happy to. Uh, hunt out, you know, runaway slaves, uh, rebel slaves, you know, in islands like St. Lucia or St. Vincent, um, and quite happy to fight against the French, uh, armed French uh, black people in, in Saint-Domingue. Um, and the, the Dominica episode in 1802 is fascinating. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a great story, the mutiny of the 8th West India Regiment. Uh, but it all comes about because the governor of Dominica um, absolutely subscribes to this idea that his soldiers, his Eighth West India Regiment, can you know work in tropical conditions um, much more so than white people can, and he and he sends them out to work in a swamp to basically do uh, work that slaves do uh, because he wants to drain this swamp. And there's there's lots of I mean. Governor Johnston of Dominica, I mean, somebody should write a biography of him because, you know, he comes across as such an unprincipled rogue um, and how he gets away with it is is beyond me. I mean, there's there's elite corruption on, a, on an epic scale. So, um, and uh, ironically, you want to drain a swamp then, right? Well, oh, that, 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 that gives a whole new meaning to, to literally draining the swamp. And, uh, you know, and he's, and he's entirely responsible for this mutiny. Um, the fact that he pushes, you know, these things to happen, and the and and these men um, say, no, we're not doing this. This is this is slave work, and and it pushes over into a mutiny where some of the white officers are killed, and um, it doesn't turn out well for the mutineers. I mean, they're, they're slaughtered. Um, but it, it's interesting that the commander uh, in the West Indies, um, Thomas Trigg, who's commander of the entire. You know, armed forces, not just this mutant, not just this regiment, um, doesn't blame them. Doesn't blame the soldiers, um, even though they have to be punished. I mean, discipline requires them to be punished, um, and he doesn't, you know, doubt that those who were executed deserve to be executed. Um, he says, you know, the real blame needs to be pointed at the white officers and um, Johnson himself, who who caused it, and that is that, that their attitudes towards using uh, and abusing. Black soldiers it was responsible. Yeah, that's no, that's just a, such a fascinating uh, moment there, and, and this development of those ideas, um, and, and 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 you know, it only is more fascinating in my mind, in the, by the fact that you know the narrative really turns pretty one eighty in the eighteen thirties uh, when you talk about how statisticians instead highlight the vulnerabilities of West Indian Regiment soldiers. Yeah. Um, not not them as as superhuman, but perhaps more towards being subhuman or their type of human. Um, 
how did this, you know, pretty radical transition and perception come about, you know, so, so quickly? Um, it comes about because um, the army had been collecting really good medical data since 1817. And by the mid-1830s, they decide to um, really do something with this data to do an analysis of it. And they commission this uh, guy, Alexander Tullock, uh, to work on it. And he's um, an army officer. He'd been um, in India, I think. And uh, he works on, on this data. And... It's just about how you interpret data. I think that's that's essentially what it is. So for the first time, they've got really good data, but then it's how you interpret it. So uh, the data shows, just as we'd always known, that um, white mortality, white soldierly mortality in the West Indies is higher than black soldierly mortality. You know, so far, so good. That's exactly what we'd known for the previous, you know, 50 years. You know, but Tullock's spin on this is not that. That is not... Uh, uh, that this is this is great and we should use black soldiers. His spin instead is that uh, the mortality amongst the West India regiments is higher than a native population should be. So he compares the West India regiments not with European soldiers, but instead with indigenous troops fighting in either Africa or India or you know other places around the world. Uh, and he says, when you look at it like that, then the mortality of the West India regiments is probably double what it should be. Uh, and then he goes on to a very complicated, you know, argument where he says, you know, this means that Africans should not be used militarily outside of Africa, uh, and they shouldn't be used in the West Indies. So. He turns this whole thing on its head because he's trying to make an argument that basically you should only use troops in climates where they were native. So you should use African troops in Africa, Indian troops in India, um, British troops in Europe, I guess. Um, but and, and he attributes that difference to climate. And he says that there's something in the West India climate that doesn't agree with the African. Uh, and everyone is effectively by nature, suited to a specific place where they are uniquely adapted. Yeah, and, and you know, this is um, it's just so fascinating how, you know, interpretations, uh, statistical interpretations can sort of turn something on, on its head, especially, as you know, in this era where statistics is taking on a sort of emergence as such an important science uh, at, this, at this time. Sure. And has such um, wide appeal and... Um, uh, such you know, it's trusted by so many people in this era. Yeah, um, yeah, and it huge. and it and it's been it's given this uh, sort of really slightly mythological status. It's like this is proper data science, and therefore it's true and it's a hard fact and you can't question it. I mean, nowadays we would look at any statistic and say, okay, so let's how are you interpreting and spinning the statistics? We all know about how these things are spun in terms of. Uh, you know how politicians use it, use statistics to prove whatever case they want to make. But in the 19th century, people think that statistics are just statistics, and therefore they can't be spun. They are hard facts, uh, and Tullock presents his spinning of them as hard facts. Um, and his importance comes out of the fact that um, his conclusions are really widely reported and discussed. 
uh, not only in Britain, but also in the US. And they are reported not only in military journals, but in medical journals. And so they become uh, an absolute trope of this 1840s, 1850s literature about the differences between white and black people. Uh, and that black people are innately suited to living in tropical zones and that you know, that's everyone's suited to where they were, you know, their ancestors were born and nobody should move. Why do you think it has such a, a wide appeal? I think it just hits the right, um, it just comes out at the right time. Um, so we're just emerging into uh, ethnology being a really popular um, scientific discourse. So people are really interested in the origins of man. Where does man come from? Are there, are there more than one type of man? Are they all, is everybody the same or are they all different? And so people have been like talking about this for about 100 years, but they're really getting into it in the 1840s and 50s. Um, and people are pushing quite strongly now against the religious narrative, the biblical narrative of we all come from you know one stock. Um, and they're saying, actually, you know, the Bible, you know, you can revere the Bible as much as you like, but it's not very scientific. And, you know, the Bible, remember, says that the world was created, what was it, something like 4000 BC or something like that. Somebody done a calculation at some point. Um, and science in this period is saying, you know, no, that, that doesn't add up there. I mean, look at look at geology, look at fossils. Look at those things that are emerging uh, in, in the 19th century that are just saying the world is way, way, way older than um, the, but the Bible suggests. And then if you can basically throw out the Bible as scientific truth, then it opens up a whole new vista to question the place of man uh, and the origins of man. And it allows a, a window for people to say uh, that the, that we all don't come from one origin that actually there, there are multiple origins uh in a parallel evolutions of effectively that that europeans and africans are not that related they're certainly not the same but they're definitely not related um and they are they are fundamentally and innately and irreversibly you know different and this suits a whole load of you know uh, racialized narratives uh, in the in the Victorian era in that sort of mid nineteenth century, uh, which ties in with the you know white supremacy in the US, uh, but also the ideas of empire and colonialism in Britain and in and, and in France, uh, where they're busy you know starting to to push into Africa and Asia and Australasia, uh, places like that, which is is a, is a narrative of white supremacy, and if you can suddenly have statistical evidence that says. You know, white people are better and black people are actually inferior and they're physically inferior, then it's a whole new story. Um, and and that's where the West India regiments are used to in order to sort of make this case. And they're used because there's, there's no comparable set of data about black people anywhere in the world. So the fact that the British have collected this data on their black soldiers for, the, for a period of time and then discussed it and then analysed it and then published it, they just make them the only place that people can go to for evidence. Yeah. It's also really fascinating to me how this is happening in the 1830s, given the fact that, in the British world at least, 
this is the era of, of abolition of emancipation that, you know, slowly in the 1830s, the British are um, you know, gradually emancipating slaves and, and their empire, as you noted, you know, 30 years before it abolished the slave trade. But you know, th this is an era where slavery, at least in its legal forms, uh, is dissipating, is on the decline. Um, do you think that there's some, some sort of paradox here um, between this, these ideas of more scientific or biological racism and the end of, of slavery? Or, or do, does that make sense? Well, I think it's always been a fallacy to think that uh, Britain's abolition of slavery uh, was a, a mark of Britain's massive humanitarianism. Um, and that Britain was a post-racial society. It was never anything like that. Um, you know, Britain had its reasons for abolishing slavery. Um, it, it was, uh, a, in some respects, a convenient humanitarian mantle to wear, to say, oh, look, aren't we you know, humanitarian because we've abolished slavery, even though they tried to replace slavery with um, apprenticeship in the Caribbean. And then they, they quickly adopted um, indentureship from from India and, and you know a whole load of Indian people were shipped out to Africa and the Caribbean sort of replace uh, lost labor um, is that there, there were also economic reasons you know why why slavery was um, abolished and uh, and effectively I think getting rid of slavery which they you know they maybe looked and thought made them look bad um, once they've done that then they sort of forget about it and they can basically say well we're not you know, we're not bad because we don't have slavery. You know, look at America. America has slavery. But actually, uh, it gives them like a blank slate to embark on colonialism in all its worst forms, including, you know, genocide against native peoples all over the place. Uh, and the British are uh, extremely efficient and brutal at doing that um, all over the world. And so we shouldn't equate abolition of slavery with any kind of long-lasting humanitarianism. In fact, humanitarianism disappears pretty quickly. Um, and they can get back to believing in um, white superiority and, and of white superiority, specifically, you know, British superiority. Um, you know, they certainly don't think the French are their equals, but they think the French are probably, you know, they would accept that the French are above uh, you know, Africans and Indians and any other type of non-white person in racial hierarchies. Uh, and so the racial discourse of the 19th century is, you know, unchallenged white supremacy, uh, because that's what history tells them. They know that every time they go off into these places, that they are going to be able to trample over indigenous peoples with impunity because they have the technology and military power to do so. So, um they know that you know, by the 19th century, the British army can easily defeat uh, native peoples if it wants to. Uh, and it might just require the Navy to sit offshore and shell somewhere in order to gain a, a surrender. Um, yeah. but, but it's able to do that. Yeah. So we talked about how the West India regiments are so fundamental to this concept of these new concepts of race and scientific racism and, um, differences between different humans, and I'm just wondering, you know, it, it's just in, it's interesting how long-lasting these West Indian regiments are um, going into the 20th century. And can you just kind of describe a little bit how their role changes as a result of these new perceptions? Sure. So the um, you know fairly early on in the 19th century, they are used in Africa, and they are used in 
um, uh, in Gambia, in uh, modern-day Ghana, or the Gold Coast, as it was known, uh, and then in modern-day Nigeria. And they're used mainly as garrison troops. So they've been attempts to have white garrison troops in West Africa. Um, They've nearly all been complete failures. The white soldiers had succumbed to either malaria or yellow fever pretty quickly, um, to the extent that there was like literally nobody left. Um, And so using the West India regiments, known to have this kind of element of tropical uh, uh, resistance, uh, resistance to tropical diseases, is, is a... It's a fairly sensible thing for the for the army to do. It makes it's perfectly logical. Um, they use the army, uh, the West India regiments, in expeditions against uh, the local uh, African peoples periodically. Um, though they prefer to have sort of agreements with these uh, people uh, if they can, but they're not afraid to use them. I mean, there's plenty of uh, examples of them being used in military conflict. Um, they're not really used in the Caribbean uh, after 1815 because they're not um, no longer in conflict with France. And so, again, they're garrison troops uh, and they're split up in small units on each island uh, and you know some on the mainland, some in Guyana, obviously, uh, and, and in Belize, but mainly in Barbados or Trinidad or Jamaica or wherever. Um, they are used to suppress slave revolts. So we know that they are absolutely crucial in the suppression of the uh, 1816 revolt in Barbados, in the 1823 uh, revolt in Guyana. Um, they're also involved in the suppression of the uh, Moran Bay Rebellion in 1865 in Jamaica. So they are there basically as a British military presence in the Caribbean uh, throughout this period. But gradually, the soldiers become less African and become more West Indian. So there are more and more recruits from the West Indies. And... Uh, so their ethnicity, I guess, changes over time. But their employment in West Africa continues right the way through the 19th century and even into the 20th century. So by the time of the First World War, uh, we see the West India regiments being used on campaign against um, German colonies in West Africa and in East Africa. So they're used against uh, Togo and uh, Tanganyika um, in, in East Africa. Uh and they, they carry on right the way through till uh, 1927 when they're finally uh, disbanded. They're not used in Europe, so they're not used in the Western Front um, in, in the First World War. They're only used in Africa. But they are uh, you know, a presence on the ground, and Britain is very happy to, to have them there and to use them. Um, but they're mainly used, as I say, for, for 100 years sort of as garrison um, soldiers. Yeah, well, well um, I guess my, so my final question here. Um, you know, since we've gone over the, this content so much, but also I want to leave our listeners with something, some incentive to to buy the book to uh, to hear all of the uh, anecdotes and, and explanations for the rise and fall here of the the West India Regiments. But I'd like to talk to you um, about some of the benefits and challenges of studying this topic from from a source perspective. As you mentioned, there's so much written on these West India Regiments. Um, it must have been you know a very uh, compared to other uh, black communities, perhaps a much much more fruitful source base. Um, but did you also experience challenges uh, coming at this topic um, methodologically? Yeah, there are big gaps in the records. Um, a lot of the data that's collected is statistical, and there's only so much you can do with statistics. So uh, a lot of the data is 
uh, to do with regimental returns, which is just numbers. It's like how many soldiers uh, are in the regiment this month? How many are fit? How many are sick? Um, how many have died? That kind of data. Well, you can only do so much with it. Uh, you know, you can you can chart it over time, but you can't do a lot of it. So you're looking for qualitative data a lot of the time. Uh, some of that survival is patchy. There was certainly a huge amount more collected and written about the West Indian regiments than seems to survive now, or at least that I found. Um, there are uh, there would have been a lot more medical records, and we only have some some of these that are left that that we can work with. Um, you know what happened to them? Well, I don't know. Uh, there's no no, no, no obvious uh, explanation for why some survive and why some don't survive. But I suppose that's true of um, all types of records. Sometimes people just um, file them wrongly. Sometimes people throw them away. Who knows? Um, there's uh, it, it's very very difficult to get the voice of the African recruit or the voice of the West Indian recruit into the West Indian regiments. They don't write memoirs they don't write letters and diaries about their experiences as a soldier so in contrast to white um, soldiers of the 19th century of which there are many many um, first-hand accounts written by them what was it like being on campaign against napoleon for instance or even in the crimea uh, crimea or something like that there's nothing in comparison uh, by the west india regiment soldiers so finding out their voice i think is one of the hardest things so we're always reading you know Sources that are generated by white people, sometimes by officers, sometimes by observers, we don't know. Um, but but finding out what their perspective was on life is actually really pretty hard. Um, you know, there's certainly more that you could do. Uh, there's some interesting episodes that could be explored in a bit more detail. Um, you know, I go up in this book to 1874, but I don't really do anything after 1874. So there's another sort of 50 years of their histories that, that could be explored um, by uh, another scholar. Um, and, you know, you could think about how they were uh, received in the Caribbean. You know, their position within Caribbean life and society is really interesting because that their legacy, even though the, obviously the regiments have been... Um, disbanded for you know nearly 100 years now their legacy is the the uniform the zouave uniform which they adopt in the 1850s the very characteristic sort of baggy uh, pantaloons that's now the the sort of ceremonial uniform of various militias in the caribbean so the jamaican defense force or the Barbados defense force that's their um uh, uh, ceremonial uniform um the legacy of the bands well the bands were always part of life in the West India regiments. And yet those bands also sort of survive to this day. So, you know, there's certainly more that you could write about uh, and, and their lasting cultural legacy, I guess, in the Caribbean. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, that other people are going to do that or not, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say that, you know, this is a, a great part of this, of this book is it, it answers the questions it seeks to answer so well. But as you mentioned, you know, this is just kind of opening up uh, to, the, uh, to this topic. And there's, there, there are other moments and experiences and perspectives that other scholars can, can take up and hopefully be inspired by your book. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, there's loads of great records in the National Archives in Britain uh, that you could use, military records. Um, one thing, if you're going to work on the West India regiments, one place you have to look uh, is that they're often filed in India records and not in West Indies records because of the name West India Regiments. Something that I came across a couple of times that everything's misfiled. <laughs> so. Wow. 
that is a good that is a good tip right there. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, well, the last question that uh, we ask everyone um, is just, you know, Dr. Lockley, do you have any other works or projects that are on the horizon for you? Anything that you want to pitch uh, right now? Um, I've been working on a um, uh, an, an essay, I guess, on the involvement of the West India Regiment in the War of 1812. So that's something I'm working on right now. And that's because they've been sort of erased from that war. Um, there's been some uh, thing in the news very recently here in Britain about uh, the erasure of uh, non-white soldiers who fought in the First World War. And uh, I wrote a blog post saying that's been going on for a lot longer than that. Uh, and so there are there are black soldiers fighting on the British side, for example, at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. And very, very few people know they were ever there. And yet they probably made up, you know, a fifth of the, of the British force at New Orleans. And, you know, if you look at any paintings of the battle, there's no black faces there. They're all white faces. Uh, so that's a really interesting little story. Uh, you know the, the fact that black soldiers marched on Washington and were involved in the burning of Washington in 1814. You know, no one ever talks about that. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Well, well, no, that's great. I mean, especially because I think there has been a flourishing of those studies for the American Revolution, perhaps, but but certainly not for the War of 1812 or other conflicts. So, uh, really looking forward to to seeing that in in print. And um, many thanks uh, for your time today and for this really really great discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Military Medicine and the Making of Race is out now via Cambridge University Press. This is R. Grant Kleiser saying thanks so much for listening and see you next time.